All right. It's been a, uh, this is, you ever have, anybody ever have a busy week? Yeah, have a busy week. We were talking, Gina and I were talking yesterday about the difference in lifestyle. When we left Georgia, Georgia was, uh, Georgia could be busy. It wasn't as busy as, uh, as some places. And we moved to Indiana. Indiana was a very laid-back lifestyle. It wasn't that people didn't work. People were hard-working people up there. But it's just a different lifestyle, more laid-back. If you're from the Midwest or something, you're, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Florida, we moved to Florida, and it's like drinking water from a, wire, a fire hose in, in, uh, in Florida. It's just a busy, everything feels busy and chaotic all the time. Even when it really isn't, it just feels that way. But some weeks are, are really busy. This was one of those weeks. Every evening there was something, uh, it was a stressful week, a lot of different things. That's just part of, of life and things going on. But then Friday night I had the opportunity to minister at a, um, a Bible conference it was the first time that this had been done. It was two churches represented, one from Palm Beach, uh, Florida, and uh, it is a Haitian congregation. And uh, they brought up their entire church, about 60, well, I say their entire, they brought up 60 people. There may be some others, but they brought up 60 people with them to this conference. And then the, the church where they had the conference in Orange City is a smaller congregation, only running 10 or 15 folks. Uh, but uh, that pastor is Haitian as well. And, uh, but I was asked about five weeks ago if I would participate in that. And uh, it was just, it was a blessing. Everything was, uh, the scripture they asked me to preach on was just, it, it, I could not have asked for a better verse. And, uh, but that's, so preparing for that, getting ready for that, and preaching that Friday night. We had about 20 folks that, um, I think it was 18, including, it was 20 including me and Gina that were there Friday night, were able to come, which blew me away. I was shocked that anybody would drive to Orange City. Y'all hear me twice a week, so I'm like, that you would come to Orange City drive all the way up there to, to hear me again. It, it was very, very encouraging to me, uh, and I had my, my little army out there of support, so it was, it was great. We had a great, great time. Uh, just, it's interesting, different worship styles for different churches, different cultures, and all of that, uh, but it was a good time. And um, so in that conference, Friday and Saturday, the theme of that conference was the worshipful human response to divine grace. Great topic. The Worshipful Human Response to Divine Grace. And my topic was a wholehearted and whole-bodied worship. That was the topic that I was given. And so this message, as I, and when I was preaching that Friday night, and I'd been preparing otherwise for Sunday morning, but as I preached it Friday night, I said, you know what, this, this would work perfect in, really in, in our series that we're into, the Sticks and Stones series. We've been talking about, you know, you know, Christians are not to judge. And we know that's not true. We are to judge, but we're to judge righteously. And then when we judge righteously, according to the Word of God, we are to speak the truth in love. And that's what we've been journeying through is the speaking the truth in love and looking at the cultural issues of today and what is our role as believers in that. Well, if we're going to do that, we've got to be in a right place with the Lord. Amen? And so we've got to, we really need to be at a place where we are, are, are having a wholehearted and whole-bodied worship. And so this message, I felt like, really goes in line with what we've, been, what we've been looking at. So I'm going to bring the message this morning that I preached on Friday night. And, and it really deals with us being fully committed in our own walk with the Lord. How can we rightly judge if we're not fully committed to the Lord? How can we speak truth in love when we're not fully committed to the Lord? And so that's the topic 
of our message this morning. So as we begin, I want to note that for many of us, our worship, our worship is tied to knowing and doing God's will. We feel like, you know, if, we're, if we, we struggle sometimes with knowing God's will and maybe being obedient to do God's will. And, and so I think our worship sometimes rises and falls based on those feelings of, am I in God's will? Am I doing His will? Am I where He wants me? Those kind of things. We want to know God's will for our lives, and in doing what God has called us to do, we feel a great sense of satisfaction. Amen? When we do the Lord's work, when we do His will, we feel a great satisfaction in that. And I believe we feel that we are worshiping God with our lives when we are in the middle of His will. We should feel that way because we are. When we, when we are where God wants us to be, we're worshiping Him with our lives. And, and there's a level of commitment that comes with that. And so, here's what we like. We, we like the, the do, the do things, right? The do. This is what you're supposed to do. We like that because we can control that. Um, we want to do God's will. Make it clear to me. What is, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will? What, what, what am I to do? And I, I, I've, I've joked about this before. A lot of people, when it comes to salvation, want to do. That's called human religion. Do. We want to work. We want to work our way to heaven. And, and we don't get to heaven on, on our work. We don't get to heaven on our do. But we like the do's. And if somebody said, well, the scriptures say if you do a million push-ups before you die, you go to heaven. People would kill themselves trying to do a million push-ups. Amen? They would. And you'd be, that, it's foolishness. And yet that's what people would try to do because it's the do. It's the thing that they can control. We're good at the doing. What we struggle with sometimes is the being. What, is, what does God want me to be? Where does he want me to be in my walk with him? The doing is something we can control, but the being is a little more complicated. So in our efforts to know what God wants us to do, we ask some questions. And the question most, that we most often ask is this. What is God's will for my life? How many of you have heard that question? What is God's will for my life? How many of you have asked that question? Okay, my hand's up too. I've asked that question. Now I'm going to tell you, that's a great question. And at the same time, it's a terrible question. And I'll explain why. See, the better question is this. What is God's will? Do you catch the difference? There's a big difference in those two questions. What is God's will for my life versus what is God's will? And, and see, too often we, we focus on the for my life part. That's where we focus. And it becomes all about us. It's all about me. It's all this. It's, it's our sin nature that rears its head again. And the warning, you know, it's, it's the egocentric. What is God's will for my life? It becomes very much about me. And we don't focus so much on the God's will part. It's, it's just about me. And a lot of times that has to do with what job should I take or should we move or should, you know, should I do this or should I, what is God's will for my life in this? Listen, when I discover and I follow faithfully God's will, His will for my life becomes easily discernible. It absolutely does. When I discover and follow faithfully God's will, then his will for my life becomes very easy to discern. Alexander McLaren said this. He, he, he wrote this. He said, uh, or wrote, to, to know beyond doubt what I ought to do and knowing to do it seems to be me to be heaven on earth 
And the man that has it needs but little more. He had a real understanding that to understand what I should do in my life, what, what God's will is, how I'm to live out my life, he, he says to know beyond doubt what I ought to do. Now, we can know that. We, we can know it right here from the Word of God. Amen? We can know His will. What I ought to do, and I've shared with you before, that word ought is this. There's a moral obligation. When we know the will of God, we know the Word of God, we know what God wills, we have a moral obligation. We ought to do what God wants us to do. There's a moral obligation in that. So as we, as we look at this, as we, as we now proceed into this message, I'm going to ask us to stop here for a moment and pray. Father, I pray that you'll direct my thoughts and my speech. And Lord, just uh, I thank you for this message that, Lord, you've, this is a message you've poured into my heart for probably 30 years. And yet, Lord, it's all fresh as I've prepared to preach it this week. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to clearly communicate what you've prepared in me and what you've presented to us from your word. May I just be a vessel in your hands, God, a tool to be used by you. And I pray, Father, you'll bless in this service. Take what we have done in preparation. But God, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God will now work through this and use it to do what only, what only you can do, Lord. And I pray for each one of us here, myself first and included in this, that each one of us would be drawn closer to you today um, as, a, as, a, as a direct result of what we're going to hear from your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, many of us associate certain Bible verses with specific events in our life. Amen. Some of you probably have a life verse. You have something that something's going on in your life. And this verse, man, it was very instrumental for here. This helped me in this situation or whatever. And you hold on to those verses. Well, the passage we're looking at this morning is, is very much that way for me. And I'm just going to give you a, a quick overview because I want you to understand what, what this means for me. Um, years ago, when I, when I really felt like the Lord was calling me into ministry... It started in 1996, in the last part of 1996, and it was about a three-and-a-half-year journey for me before the Lord put me in ministry. And uh, I really felt the Lord's leading. I felt this calling in my life, but I didn't have a clue in the world what that meant. I didn't feel like at that time, I didn't feel like God was calling me to, to pastor. I didn't feel like God was calling me to go to some foreign field. But I absolutely felt the call on my life to give my life in full-time service to Him, whatever that meant. And I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what it looked like. So I began to really search this. And I had moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. Gene and I were up there. I was working with FedEx. And uh, I'm talking with a friend of mine, Alan Reynolds. Y'all have heard that name. Alan's had a great, great, great influence in my life spiritually. And Alan was directing a Christian youth camp in Georgia at the time. And, and uh, I was talking with him. He said, look, here's what you need to do. You need to take a week of vacation. You need to come down here and work at the camp for a week. You need to come and serve, just hang out and, and, and be here and do some stuff with us here. And so I did. We took a week off. We took a week of vacation. We came down. We were coming to Georgia to serve at camp. Now, here's what's crazy. I get down there. He didn't tell me ahead of time, but I get there. And, he, and, and on Saturday or Sunday, he says, all right, now, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, you're going to preach in the chapel at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. So you guys that get nervous when I call on you to pray, that was nothing compared to what happens when, when you get... He didn't tell me a week in advance because he knew I probably wouldn't have come. Uh, so I was scared to death. But stood up, stood up, and, uh, and for three days I had to, I had to bring the message, and, and God used all that. But here's what happened. Friday night, we left. I got off work Friday night, probably 7 o'clock. We got on the road maybe by 8, 
And we're driving down the road. And I remember as we're coming from Charlotte to Athens, it's about a three-hour drive, two-and-a-half, three-hour drive, and Gina has gone to sleep. I'm surfing through the radio, and I hear a message being preached, and it's the passage we're looking at today. This preacher's preaching. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So I'm listening. That's interesting. So Saturday, we're chilling out at my mom's house, and I'm, I'm channel surfing. You know, it's what you do. You're chilling, just surfing through. And I'll come across some preacher on the TV. Guess what he's preaching? He's preaching this passage. And then that's when you stop and you go, oh, okay. All right, Lord, I'm listening. I'm listening. Uh, all right. So, uh, you know, I, I, I was, that, that had me, you know, kind of unsettled. So we go through the week, and we get to the end of the week. Wow. Got to the end of the week, leaving camp on Friday, and uh, I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave. I was like, Lord, I don't, I, I don't want to go back to my job. I want to serve you, Lord. I want to, I, w- I want to do what you want me to do. And I didn't know. So I'm talking to Alan. And I think Sunday, maybe Saturday night, we had a meal together. And I'm talking to Alan again. And I said, Alan, how do you know? How do you know God's will for your life? How do you know what he wants you to do? How can you be sure it's coming from him and all that? And he, and he says, I don't know. I don't know exactly what to tell you. But I'll tell you this. You go to this verse. You go to this verse and you study out this verse and God will show you. And the verse he gave me was Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it was the same passage. Three times that week, God put this passage in my way. And so I go back to Charlotte, North Carolina. I go back to FedEx and I wrote, first thing I do is I write the passage down on, on index cards. And I just start memorizing it. And so I'm at work and things are going crazy. I'm reading it. I'm, I'm reading it. I'm meditating on it. I began to dig deeper into the verse and understanding what that means. And I'm going to tell you, God used that verse instrumentally in, in, in making his call in my life crystal clear. And so when we understand God's will, because through this verse, through if we live out what this verse, what we're going to look at this morning, if we live this out, his will becomes crystal clear. And when his will becomes crystal clear, his will for my life is crystal clear. Amen. And so let's, we're going to look at four points this morning. First is this. The first thing we're going to look at is the, the basis of commitment. Number one, the basis of commitment. We're going to look at the first part of verse one. It says, I beseech you. Let me just read the whole thing. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And we hear it right there. To know what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We want to know the will of God. We want that revealed in our life. And it's revealed right here in these verses. So the first part of this, the basis of commitment. Number one is I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Paul says I beseech you. Now Paul does not make a demand here. Paul's not telling you I command you by the mercies of God. I demand that you do it. He doesn't do that. He's pleading with these brothers and sisters in Christ. He's appealing to them Passionately, he is begging them. I am pleading with you, folks. Therefore, therefore, I am pleading with you. Therefore, now, when you see a therefore in Scripture, and you've probably heard this before, but when you come across a therefore in Scripture, you need to stop and you need to ask, what is that therefore, therefore? It's therefore a reason. 
And typically what you've got is there's been information given and provided and you've read through this, 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 this. Now, therefore, and it's based on this that you come to the therefore and it's a transition that I've given you this information. Now, therefore, this information. It's kind of a, it's a a little bit of a hinge in there. And so he says, therefore, by the, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I beseech you, therefore, and he's talking to brethren, and he tells them it's by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God. So specifically, Paul is talking about mercies of God that he's just spent 11 chapters spelling out. You go back and you read it. Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11, you read it. It is full It is full of doctrinal teaching and information that Paul gives us. He spells out all these mercies of God. God's mercy to the fallen, lost in their sin, human race, through the provision of His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul wrote of the mercies of God in in those 11 chapters. And he makes it clear... Listen, as you read Romans, he makes it very clear that man is hopelessly lost in his sin and eternally separated from God, and he can do nothing about it. There's nothing that I can do. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Spiritually, we are dead. There's not a thing we can do to save ourselves. God has done everything. And Paul spells out in these 11 chapters all of the mercies of God. Now I'm going to give you a rundown. This isn't exhaustive. As I told him Friday night, it might be exhausting, but it's not exhaustive, okay? But he tells, he tells how, now listen, God credits us righteousness apart from works. That's chapter 322 and 46. God offers us justification and redemption, 324. Jesus' sacrifice provides atonement, 325. God takes judgment on himself, 325 and 425. God is forbearing and patient with us, 325. Our transgressions are forgiven and sins covered, 47. Our sins are not counted against us, 48. God gives spiritual life to the spiritually dead, amen, 417. God makes peace between us and himself, amen. 5-1. God poured His love into our hearts. 5-5. Five, five. He has given us the Holy Spirit. Amen. 5-5. Five, five. God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were still in open rebellion against Him, He revealed His love. 5-8. He saved us from His wrath. 5-9. He reconciled us to Himself. 5-11. He gives us eternal life. 5-21. 6-23. 8-11. He provides an overflowing and abundant provision of grace, 5, uh, 15 and 17. God has allowed us to die to sin, 6, 2. God gives us new life, 6, 4. He allows us to bear fruit, 7, 4. He frees us from condemnation, 8, 1. He makes us His children, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, 8, 17. God shares His glory with us, 8, 17. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us, 8, 26 and 27. God works for our good, 8, 28. He conforms us to His image, 8, 29. He is for us, 8, 31. God doesn't bring Bring charges against us, 833. He provides his love from which we can never be separated, 835 through 39. God saves all who call on him. Amen. 1013. He allows those who do not seek him to find him. Isn't that great? Because none seek him. We're none of us were righteously seeking him. None. And he allows those who don't even seek him to find him. 1020. He offers us His kingdom, 1122. 
He gives us irrevocable calls and gifts, 1129. Good stuff, huh? And then all make us just say, praise God, glory, hallelujah. It should make a Baptist shout. We had, we had a little shouting this weekend, just a little bit. They got a little more, Linda, they got a little more alive on Saturday. They were, they were a little dead on Friday night. They got a little more alive Saturday morning. They were some shouting Baptists. It's okay to shout. Amen. Y'all know that? It's okay to shout. It's okay to say amen. amen. If you agree with something, that's what you're saying. I agree with that. That's truth. You're acknowledging that. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. It's okay to do that. I won't get mad. Don't have, try to have a conversation with me when I'm trying to preach, though, okay? But, the, but I, that's all good stuff. We can do that. And see, here's the thing. That, we, all, we read all that. We ought to say praise God with that. Amen? And so after all this, Paul breaks out in, in adoration at the end of chapter 11. He's written all this. He's, he's, you know he recited his, most of everything he recited. So it wasn't that Paul sitting down and writing. He's reciting it. And I can imagine Paul was preaching, you know, as he's, as, he's, as he's reciting this. And he comes down to the end of chapter 11, and he just breaks out in adoration. Look what he says, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of, his, of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Can't you just hear him saying that? He's fired up. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath, hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For Listen, verse 36 here. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom, to, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Paul broke out in adoration. He's just talked 11 chapters about the mercies of God, and now he just has to do a little worship. He's blown away by what God has done, that he's so awestruck that it just overflows into praise and to worship and to adoration. After teaching all this theology, this rich doctrine, Paul breaks out into doxology. And y'all know what doxology is, right? Doxology is a formal word for, it's a liturgical form of worship. And that when we sing the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. We sing that. We understand the doxology. It's a liturgical form of worship. He breaks out in it. And, and this theology, theology brings doxology. It brings us into worship. So when we, when we study theology, and it's important that we study the theology. Amen. The theology isn't always the exciting stuff. We like the application. We like... A lot of times, and there's a lot of churches doing this, they, they, they butcher theology and make a, 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 a wrong application. I'm looking for a word. It's, it, it's, a, it's a wrong application a lot of times because they butchered the theology. That's not really... you got to go... The theology is so important. It has to be right teaching. And when we have right theology, then it can be great application. But listen, theology is information. It's informational. But here's the thing about right theology. It leads to transformation. When there's right teaching, right theology, it leads to transformation, which should always turn into uh, adoration. So when we have the right information, it brings transformation, which brings adoration. 
So right understanding of theology, that is understanding all God's mercy shown to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, should always lead to true worship and adoration of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when correct doctrine moves us to real worship, when correct doctrine moves us to real worship, inevitably, true commitment follows. When you've had bad theology, you end up with... It's not true commitment. It's not real commitment because there's been no real transformation. Now, we see this same pattern from Paul in, in his letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul teaches theology, doctrine. In Ephesians 3, verse 20 and 21, he breaks out again into worship. There's doxology here. Listen to what he says. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, Unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. He teaches theology. He breaks out into doxology, into worship. And then in 4.1, he lays out the application, the practical part, the duty, the commitment, the worship part. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. There's that word again. Paul's begging us. I beseech you, I beg you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Paul says, let the information, let the truth of this doctrine transform and change your life, and then you go and apply it and live it out. Be committed to what God has done for you. For the born-again Christian, there is unity between doctrine, doxology, and duty. The greater our comprehension of what God has done for us, the greater our commitment to Him should be. Let me say that again. The greater our comprehension of what God has done for us. What, what's the thing? To whom much is given, much will be required. You know what the problem is? We don't understand the much given part. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't meditate on and really dwell on and think on and get deep in this, this true deep understanding of what God has done for us. Sometimes we don't, we, we feel, you know, has God, you know, God, did he do me a favor? You know, really? I mean, was it really something great when he saved me? Maybe I really didn't need saving. Maybe I was okay. I wasn't really that bad. You got to understand who you were. You're lost. You're a filthy rag. You're nothing. There's nothing good in you. Nothing good in you. There's still nothing good in you except Christ. Amen. Nothing good. And you're separated from God. You are separated from God. Eternally, hopelessly lost. Go into hell, folks. That's where we're all headed. But God. But the mercies of God. And when we dwell on that, when we meditate upon what He has done for us, it brings worship. Because we understand what He did for us. Now, if you're going, I preach you, you're really getting wound up about that. Boy, that's just not that big a deal. You know what you need to do? You need to go back and study the, the theology. I, just go read Romans 1 through 11 five or six times today and meditate on what God's done for you. Look at the mercies of God. And when we understand what He has done for us, the greater our comprehension of what God has done for us, the greater our commitment to Him should be. And it should be because you still have a choice. But I'm just telling you, we as believers, when we get a hold of what God's done for us, you just can't be the same. And that's what Isaac Watt meant when he wrote the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Y'all know that hymn? I'm going to read you. I'm going to read it. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, 
My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? And then he says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Folks, we're to give our all. We're to give our all. When we understand what the Lord has done for us, we want to give our all. Paul's not asking us for a favor when he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Folks, what he's stating is an obligation. Uh, There's an obligation. Because of the mercies of God, just look at what he's done for you. It is our obligation to dwell on what Christ has done for us and to make our commitment to him accordingly. There's scarcely anything more valuable for building our commitment than an increasing understanding of the greatness of God and His mercies to us. Amen? Amen. Number two, the characteristics of commitment. The second part of verse one says, Now, so he, he, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, second part here, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So this commitment that Paul's talking about has two characteristics. The first is this. It is total. It is total commitment. And we see that in the language of sacrifice. So the Greek word that's translated here is present, that you present your bodies. Present. It's a technical term used for the ritual presentation of a sacrifice. So it's, it's, it's intentional. It is, it is a worshipful thing. It's what we do. We, you bring this, this ritual sacrifice to be offered to God as a sacrifice, which means it's going, to, it's going to be given to the Lord. It's going to die. You're not taking it home with you after this, but we present it. We're giving it to the Lord as a sacrifice. It's an intentional thing. So we're to present, he says, you present your bodies. Now, when he's talking about your bodies here, he's not talking about flesh and bone uh, only. He, he's referring to, to, to more than skin and bone. He's talking about that, that this word, your bodies, it signifies everything we are. Our entire being, our entire person, our body, soul, and spirit. It's everything that we're to give to him. He says, present. Present your bodies. A lot of times we think bodies, well, you know, I'll just come to church. That could be just your body showing up because your spirit ain't here. Your thoughts are somewhere else. Your commitment isn't really there. But we give our bodies. Well, I did this for the Lord. I did that for the Lord again. The do, do, do. We do a lot of do's with our body. But it's more than just your body. He said, present your bodies. He's talking about the entire person who I am. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Now, this would have been an oxymoron to those that Paul was writing to. They would have heard living sacrifice. And it's like us hearing government intelligence. Right? The two don't go together. So we talk about, man, this is government intelligence, and we go, what are you talking about? Those two don't go together. So when you say living sacrifice, when Paul writes that, they wouldn't have, that wouldn't have made any sense to them. Living sacrifice? 
See, when a sacrifice was presented, it was killed. And then it was totally consumed on the altar. There was no walking away. Look, you didn't take your baby lamb that you raised up, little, little fluffy, and, and take it to the altar and give it to the Lord. And then it's all over and fluffy. Come on, fluffy, let's go home now. And you take, no, no, no. Fluffy is no more. Fluffy was given to the Lord, was killed and offered as a sacrifice to the Lord and then was burnt. And there is no more fluffy. It's gone. And so it's put on the altar. It was to- totally consumed. There's no walking away. There's, there's, there's no, uh, the, the, no sacrifice that was offered lived. So what Paul is telling us is that we should put self, flesh on the altar. We should die to self. We should die to ourselves. We should crucify the flesh. We should take up the cross and follow Him. Our life shouldn't be about me anymore. It should be about Him. That's how we should live our lives. Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, but like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. When we become followers of Christ, there should be a change. There should be a newness of life. Life that is in Christ, not life in the flesh. We have to crucify the flesh. That needs to be done how often? Every day. Sometimes multiple times in the day where we got to go flesh. Nope, not going there. Not going to do it. We got to crucify the flesh. We got to put it on the cross and kill it. And and we got to give it to the Lord. Paul expresses this idea perfectly in Galatians 2.20. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Flesh, the flesh or, or, or the self is dead. And when we really live for Christ, then the flesh is dead. The flesh is crucified. My life is in Christ. In fact, my life is Christ. That's how it should be for us as believers. Amen? Amen. We should, our life should not just be about Christ. It should be Christ. That is our life. He is our life. This is as bold and as clear a call to total commitment, to total worship as there is anywhere in the Scriptures. And this call applies equally to all believers, to every one of us, whether it's from the preacher to the pews, as a professor to the students, as a pianist to the painter, to high schoolers, to everyone. This applies to everybody, to, to all in the entire church. This applies to all. We must put away the medieval thinking that makes a distinction between clergy and laity, between preachers and the people. We've got to put aside this idea that ministers and missionaries should have 100% commitment, but the laity are permitted 75% commitment or 50% commitment or even less. Well, I'm not a preacher. You know, I'm not a missionary. I don't teach Sunday school, so it's okay for for me not to live up to that standard. No, it's not. It's not. I promise you, there's some of you out there doing things that if if you got pictures of me doing, y'all would ask for my resignation. Oh, well, there's a different standard for you, preacher. No, there's not. God's standard for me is to live righteously. You know what a standard is for you? To live righteously, 100% committed to Him. We all have the same commitment. Every single believer is called to 100% commitment to Christ. Now, so the question then I want to ask you is this. Are are you involved in worship 
worshiping the Lord? Are you involved in that or are you committed to it? Are you, are you involved in worshiping the Lord or are you committed to it? And, and so I want to help you think about it this way. We like breakfast, right? You like breakfast? You like breakfast? Uh, I want you to think about bacon and eggs, which is a great part of breakfast. But if you are, if you are going to participate in breakfast, do you want to be the chicken or the pig? Because the chicken is involved in breakfast when he donates some eggs. The pig's committed. He's all in. I mean, he's all in. He's sausage. He's ham. He's bacon. He's all of it. There's a big difference between being involved in it and being committed to it. Where are we at? Are we just involved in worshiping the Lord? Are we just involved in in the things of the Lord? Are we truly committed to the things of the Lord? Now, the second thing about this commitment to the Lord, it it, it calls us, it's a total commitment. It calls us to that. But it's also, it is reasonable. It's reasonable. Now, some some of your translations translate this different. And I'm going to be contrary here because I don't think they're wrong. I think think when it says this is your spiritual worship, not that it's necessarily wrong, but it doesn't capture the real idea here. And you really have to explain that. You have to really explain even what's spiritual worship. You've got to go deep into explaining that. The, the, the translation that says, which is your reasonable service. I want you to understand why I think this is right. Because that word reasonable comes from the word uh, uh, logikos. Logikos. Anybody, anybody have any idea what English word we might get from that word? Y'all are good. Y'all are good. Exactly. The word logikos is the word that's translated there as reasonable. And it, and it means exactly that, logical, okay? So it's not asking us, uh, it's not asking too much of us. It's not illogical or irrational in what, what Paul is asking us to do there into being a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto him. It's not irrational. It's not illogical. It's the least that we can do to live for Jesus Christ who died for us. It's the reasonable thing to do. It's the logical thing to do based on all the information. It's not asking too much for total commitment. When the Lord asks for our total commitment, He's not asking too much. It's not an illogical, irrational, unreasonable request. It is our reasonable service. It's the very least that we can do. For Paul, true worship in offering ourselves to God is reasonable or logical because it is consistent with the proper understanding of the truth of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. Total commitment is the only rational response when we really see who God is and understand what He has done for us. Amen? Nothing else makes sense. One theologian said this. He said, The intelligent understanding of worship... That is, the worship which is consonant with the truth of the gospel is indeed nothing less than the offering of one's whole self in the course of one's concrete living, in one's inward thoughts, feelings, and aspirations, but also in one's words and deeds. Sounds like everything to me. Our worship should be everything in our life. Partial commitment is irrational. 
to decide to give part of your life to God and keep other parts for yourself, to say everything is yours, Lord, but this relationship or this deal or this business or this pleasure, that is beyond spiritual logic. Excuse me. If we're worshiping apart from total commitment to God, it is a false worship. Let me say it again. If we are worshiping apart from total commitment to God, it is a false worship. We're deceiving ourselves if we are doing Christian things but are not consecrated. And that means set apart to Jesus Christ. One pastor said it well. He said, to be a Christian means to give us as much of myself as I can to as much of Jesus Christ as I know. You go, well, I, I think I've given everything to the Lord. You may have. But you know what I know? Sometimes there's things that we've held back. And when God reveals that, because there's none of us that have totally, totally given everything to the Lord. You may have given everything you knew at that moment. But what you realize is there's a room I held back. There's, there's a compartment in my heart that I held back. There was a pet sin I kept back. There was a, something in my thought life that I held back. There was something, there was something you know, I had a, a lust for something or whatever. There's something that I may have held back. And it may have been I didn't even realize I held it back. But, but the call is that we give as much of ourself as we, as, we can, as we can, as we realize, as we know, to as much of Jesus as we know. Man, when we understand who he is, we should give everything to him. Number three, and we're, we're actually almost done. I have two points, but we're almost done. Number three, the demands of commitment. Verse two, first part of verse two. Notice that the, the verse two, there are two commands here. The first is a negative command, and, it's, and it says, and be not conformed to this world. And then the second is a positive command. It says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And be not conformed to this world. And that word conformed, it carries this idea, is to make something like another thing. That's what it means to be conformed, to make something like another thing. Folks, this world is trying to conform you right now. This world wants to conform your kids into what? The shape of the world into the ways of the world. It's this making something like another thing. And, and scriptures tell us, don't be like this world. Don't follow this world. Don't love this world. Don't be shaped by this world. You know, if you, you, you go to the beach and you, as you had kids and you used to go out on the beach with the little shapes, what'd you do? You put sand in there, right? And you packed it in. You were, you were getting that sand to conform to that mold. And what happened then, you put it down and you take the form off and you know what it does? It holds that shape. It's been conformed to the image of that. We're not to be conformed to the image of this world. We're not to be shaped like this world. That's what, and, and, and that's what Paul's telling us. Be not conformed. This is for us. You fight against that. Do not follow the ways of this world. We're to be different. Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now, we've talked about this before, but peculiar doesn't just mean weird. We read that, well, it just means we're all weird. No, it doesn't. We may be and we should be. In the eyes of the world, they should look in and see weird. But it really, it means unique and distinctive. We're distinctive. We should be different. Man, if, if the world looks at you and goes, why, 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 would, I, why would I be a Christian? Man, you, I do all the things you do. You do all the things I do. What's the difference? I don't even have to give any money to the church. I still got my Sunday mornings free. And I can talk like you talk and do what you do. And Amen? Not be conformed to this world. 
We're to be different. They ought to look at us and go, you do what? You, you do what on Sunday? You, you, don't, you don't drink? You don't smoke? You don't run around with, you don't run around on your wife? You don't watch those kind of movies? You don't, you don't, what, really? Wow, you're weird. No, I'm peculiar. Maybe I am weird in your eyes, and that's a good thing. But then comes the positive, and Paul says, be, be you not, uh, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the language, again, is very, is very descriptive, very graphic. That word transformed, let's see if y'all can get this one. This is really hard. It's metamorpho, I think is the way it's pronounced, metamorpho. Anybody have any idea what that might be? Y'all are really good. Y'all are good. That's exactly right. It, 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 it's, it's, it's metamorphosis. And y'all know what that is. Metamorphosis is to change from one form to another. So we're not to be conformed. We're not to be shaped like the world, but we're to be changed. We're to be transformed. We're to be changed from the inside out. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, that transformation is like with a caterpillar to a, bas- a, a, a butterfly. We all are familiar with that one. But how many of you have ever seen tadpoles? I loved tadpoles as a kid. We had a pond behind our house. I remember going down there, and you know, one day there'd be no tadpoles, and or, or there'd be nothing there. And then the next day, you go down there, this glob of goo and jelly. You know, it's clear, and there were these little black things in there. I didn't have a clue what they were. Well, then you go back a few days later, and you got all these little things swimming around in the water. They were so cool, and so they got bigger, catching those, and the way they would. I mean, I love tadpoles. Then you watch as they start sprouting the, the, the legs. You thought, this is crazy. And then the next thing you know, they're, they're hopping out of the water and you got all these little toads, these little bitty toads running around. So it's, a, it's an incredible thing to watch, this transformation. It's what God wants to do in us. Be ye transformed. How does that happen? Well, to be transformed, this, this phrase there, to be transformed, it's a passive imperative. And what it means is that, that, it, that the action, it, it must be done by someone or something else, in which we understand is the Holy Spirit of God. So it's the Holy Spirit of God working on us. And how? How? By the renewing of your mind. We're to be transformed. We're to allow this to happen. We're to allow the Holy Spirit's work in our life. And the Holy Spirit transforms us by the renewing of our minds. Well, how is our mind renewed? It's through the Word of God. And you go, well, preacher, how does that work? Well, let me, I've explained this before, but I want to, this is one of my favorite illustrations. We were at the beach years ago. We'd come down in September, late September, many years in a row. We came down, brought the kids down. We stayed over at Port Orange. And I can remember we'd go out on the beach in the morning, the beach would just be pristine. You spend the day out there and cars drive on the beach, it gets cluttered up that way and people dig, dig the holes and they build the sand castles. And by the end of the day, you look at it from down the beach and what do you see? It looks cluttered. It, it, you know, it's, it's not pristine anymore. But here's what's amazing. If I come back out the next morning, guess what it's going to be? Pristine. How does that happen? How does the beach get renewed? They must have big trucks that come out here and level it out. Nope, nope, that's not what happens. It's very simple. You know what happens. The tides come in. And the tide doesn't come in like a tsunami. It comes in with a little wave. It's just wave after wave. Unless you're sitting there watching it, you can't even see the tide coming in. You have to sit and watch it for a while, and then you've got to move your chair back, and you realize, hey, the water's getting closer. So the, it comes in wave after wave after wave after wave after wave after wave, and then it begins to go out, wave after wave after wave after wave. And what it does is it comes in, and it washes all that clutter and all that that's been messed up, and it goes back out, and it leaves it pristine. When we 
When we get into the Word of God, folks, when we bathe our mind in the Word of God, wave after wave after wave after wave after wave of the Word of God, we are transformed. We're changed on the inside by the renewing of our minds. I'm going to tell you, you can't hit, there's no highlight this and hit delete. If you've seen it, if you've read it, if you've watched it, it's in there. It's in there. You got junk in there. I wish we could go, that file there needs to go. Delete. Get rid of that, get rid of that, get rid of that. Just clean all that out. Empty the recycle bin. Be done with it. We can't do that. But what you can do is you renew your mind with the Word of God. You renew your mind. Number four, we see the effect of commitment. Last part of verse two, it says that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. When we do this, you want to know God's will? That's His will. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God's will is clear in His Word. You get in His Word, He's going to clearly make His Word known. Pastor Aaron, you can, you can come forward. I'm almost done. God's Word is clear. His will is clear. A committed life has the power to perceive what God's will for my life is. Because when we, when we are clear on His will, His will for my life becomes very clear. As I read before, Alexander McLaren said, To know beyond doubt what I ought to do, and knowing to do it, seems to me to be heaven on earth, and the man that has it needs but little more. The one who is committed to God sees life with confidence and clarity. Amen. Folks, when, 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 you, when you get right with God, you get close to God, you're in the Word of God. When you get in the Word of God, you know His will. You know His will. His will, folks, is not a mystery. He hasn't hidden it from us. He wants us to live holy lives. He wants to live lives set apart for Him. And when we get in the Word and we see He reveals it in His Word because His will never conflicts with the Word of God. It's right there. And we get in the Word and we see His will and we live His will. We're committed to that. It brings confidence and clarity. It's the careless and the uncommitted that walk around this life in lost confusion. The committed knows God's will. And he finds God's will to be good and acceptable and perfect. So what is God's will for my life? It's easy. That we worship the Lord with our whole heart and with our whole body. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. And folks, when we do that, we live our lives that way. You won't be walking around going, man, I just want to know what God's will for my life is. Because you're going to be walking right slap dab in the middle of God's will for your life. Because you're going to be doing God's will. For a truly born again believer, anything less than that is unacceptable. Amen? Amen.